This afternoon we take a break once again uh, from our studies in Genesis in order that we might uh, consider something that is more closely related to the celebration of our Lord's uh, death as we gather together around his table of remembrance. And I invite you, therefore, to turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we read these familiar words in verses 28 and 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Once again, let's pray for the help and the blessing of God. Holy Father, we do thank you and bless you that you've given to us a Savior, even Christ the Lord. We bless you that in him we have a gentle and lowly Savior, as we have just read, one who welcomes us, one who invites us to come to him. And we come again and again as needy sinners. Even though saved by grace, we still are not free ultimately from our sins. We need fresh mercy and today. Therefore, meet us, we pray, where we are, and draw near to us and speak to us and, and uh, sanctify us by your word, by your truth. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Matthew, Mark, on. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And here in Matthew 11, Jesus tells us, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And only in this one place does the Son of God pull back the veil and let us peer down into the very core of who he is. And when he tells us about his heart, when he tells us about his inner being, he doesn't say, I am austere and demanding in heart. And one time he speaks to us about his heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And this text is something of a springboard for our intermittent series of Lord's Supper sermons on the heart of Jesus. And in this statement about his heart, he refers to two virtues, the first of which is identified by the word prouse, which is sometimes translated meek, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, sometimes translated gentle, as in Peter's description of the godly woman, adorned by the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And the other word that Jesus uses to describe his heart is lowly, sometimes used to describe the grace of humility, but in this place and in other places like it, to describe not so much humility that is voluntary, but it is a state of destitution. It describes those that have been humbled by their circumstances, who have been oppressed, who have been reduced to degradation and contempt. Jesus takes that lowly position. This is the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly. And taken together, these traits, they manifest themselves in a readiness to forgive, a readiness to endure, and a readiness to receive. 
He says to you, he says to each of us, I am willing to receive the lowest, the poorest, the most despised, the most ignorant, the most rejected among you, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now this afternoon we're going to look at another manifestation of this grace, which probably doesn't come to our minds immediately when we think of Jesus being gentle and lowly in heart. What I want to speak to you about this afternoon is the the gentleness of Christ's joy. And in this sermon, we're going to take a look at several passages of Scripture that refer to his joyful heart, and his joyful heart opens unto us, I believe, a wonderful facet of his gentle reception of sinners. And first of all, I want you to turn with me to the book of John, to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at different texts, but this is, if any text, is going to be our primary text. John 15. I want to read beginning with verse 9. Jesus says to his disciples, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then notice these words, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, a popular conception that many Christians have or I should say that many people have of Christians, people that are out in the world, they think of this about Christians, is that Christians are grim people. They're the grim types that suppose that for anything to be good, it has to be painful and hard. They're sourpusses with a grouchy disposition and scowls on their faces. This is the caricature of Christians. But as one commentator notes, a gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. And nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. Now, hand in hand with this misconception of Christians being these grim people is the false idea that they're killjoys. And the reason they're killjoys is because Jesus is a killjoy. And what he taught them is just what they live out in their lives. And he taught them to be a bunch of miserable grouches that suppose that nothing can be good if it doesn't, if it doesn't make you miserable. But what Jesus says here in John 15 and verse 11, it puts that caricature to the lie. He says, these things I have spoken to you, not to make you grouchy, to make you grim, to make you, to make you miserable. I spoke these things to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. He wants you and me to be joyful. And the joy that he wants us to have is not just an ordinary joy. He wants us to have his own joy. He speaks about my joy being in you. Now, joy is an attribute that our minds are somewhat unwilling sometimes to attribute to the Lord Jesus. The common impression by the man on the street and even the man in the pew 
is that Jesus hardly knew what joy is. And as everybody knows, joy, you see, is emotion that shows itself in radiant looks and in cheerful tones. It's a happy type of a disposition. And it's the result of a satisfaction that swells the soul. It's a pleasure that raises our spirits. We shout for joy. We leap for joy. We sing for joy. That's the kind of grace that it is. Now, it's not easy for many of us to think of our blessed Lord Jesus ever having in his public life this kind of an experience. We're more likely, oftentimes, because of the way we've just kind of been brought up, we're more likely to think of him as the man of sorrows rather than the man of joy, even though he's both. And the sorrows that Jesus had to bear, they were so heavy, you see, that we tend to think that in any frame of mind in which sadness was not overpowering his emotions, that, that this would hardly be an experience, you see. And to us it seems impossible that he could have felt otherwise than oppressed and burdened down continually with the world's sin and with the punishment that he was about to bear in behalf of his people. But even though we think of him as the man of sorrows, and that's biblical, instinctively we shrink from describing him nevertheless as an unhappy person. We wouldn't say that. We don't think of him as being somebody that's depressed and miserable most of the time. No pessimist could ever be our savior. Unhappiness could never beget happiness, just as sickness can never produce health. And so we think of, that he must have known something, therefore, we think of happiness and joy. His coming into the world was announced as what? Good tidings of what? Great joy. We sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. And the message that he himself proclaimed is good tidings, the best tidings of all. It's inconceivable that he'd go around telling us the best news you ever heard, and yet he would be a sourpuss. He'd be miserable. He'd bow to be down in the dumps about it all. It's misleading to say merely, you see, with one writer, we never read that Jesus laughed, but once that he rejoiced in spirit. And just to leave it at that, it, that conveys a misconception. Now, life indeed did have an awful dark side to it. The cross continually cast its shadow over his life. Again and again, its reminders came to his mind. But life to the Lord Jesus also had a bright side. There was an elasticity of his nature, you see. It enabled him to experience joy and happiness. It's not the mark, you see, of greatness to be constantly looking always at the dark side of everything. In a healthy soul, there is a resilience that resists the weight of heavy loads and finds relief by directing its thoughts to brighter things. And that's why, and this is on a lighter way, why we need humor once in a while. But obviously we're not talking so much about humor when we talk about the Lord Jesus. It's a sign of the greatness of his soul that he often rose above depressing circumstances and even in that could find joy. And he rose above the unparalleled sorrows that were about to engulf him. And they didn't consume him. He could pass on, you see, his peace and his joy unto his disciples. Now, indeed, the gospel narratives, they lead us to believe that there were times, therefore, when Jesus was radiant. When Jesus 
was happy. Otherwise, think with me, how would children have ever come to Jesus? Now, while I was preparing for this sermon, I remembered a statement or a little story that was told by Charles Spurgeon. And I spent some time trying to figure out where this was and all of his sermons and all of his books. And I couldn't find out where it was, so I've just got to give it to you the best way that I remember. But what I remember years ago, that he said something to this effect, that Jesus, that somebody said in the presence of a child, that Jesus never smiled or Jesus never laughed. That was the statement that somebody made. And so overhearing this remark, the little child said, that man lied. And so somebody said, well, why do you say this? Well, he said that Jesus never smiled. If this is true, children would have never gone to Jesus. And that child had a little bit of insight in saying that. You see, obviously, uh, no child runs into the arms of a grump. The child runs into the arms of a happy, warm, smiling, joyful type of a person. And so that child knew something about Jesus from making that observation from the Gospels. Now again, how could he have been invited to so many tables and in so many homes if he was just always the miserable person in such company? If he didn't display geniality and social warmth that made people want him to come to their home? If he's always sad, how could he be been a contrast with John the Baptist? John the Baptist, you remember, came neither eating or drinking. He seems to have gravitated to a more austere and severe manner of life. And in contrast to the Baptist, Jesus came eating and drinking, and he was maligned as a, as a glutton and as a wine-bearer, you remember. He was maligned as somebody that had too much fun, so to speak, with people and enjoyed life too much. How would that accusation come out if Jesus was always around looking like a sourpuss? And so he was no stranger to happiness. And because of this, he told his disciples that fasting was not appropriate while he was among them. He's the bridegroom. It's a happy occasion. While the bridegroom is there, festive things are in order. But even more remarkable is the fact that here in John chapter 15, what's the setting? He's on the verge of Gethsemane in Calvary. And he speaks not of his sorrows at this this time, but he speaks of his joy. And here's something very interesting as you go through the Gospel of John. Prior to the references in our text to his joy, The word joy in its noun form is only used one time prior to this in the Gospel of John, back in chapter 3 and verse 29. But now when we come to the upper room discourse, where we have chapters 13 up through chapter 16, in the upper room discourse it is used seven times. It's the occasion when he's just about ready to enter into his agonies. And as he enters into his agonies, he speaks of his joy. And he seeks to get his disciples to enter into that joy. And this is one of the things that makes his joy so precious. He's not, you see, a a no-forget-reality type of a person, a sky-is-always-blue type of an optimist that never looks at reality. This man of joy, he dwelt also in the blackest of night. He's seen hell in men's hearts. 
He's seen the way they flamed in their eyes against him and all their hatred. He could see the evil works of the devil around him. And he could also anticipate the awful darkness, the utter dereliction, and the unparalleled agonies that were about to come over him. And yet, even then, at that point, his joy is not unconquered. And it is this joy that he intends for you and for me. Now, this afternoon, it's not my purpose to analyze every aspect of Christ's joy. But what I want to do is point out three aspects of his joy that reveal his heart to needy sinners. That's our basic overall theme in this series. And as we come, therefore, to the table of remembrance, we come to the consciousness that because of our sins, it was necessary for him to suffer and to die. And he endured, you see, the darkness and the blackness of hell for you and me. That's what we deserve. And yet instead of being repulsed by us and what it inflicted upon him, he rejoices in us and he wants our, his joy to be our joy. And in this connection, there are three facets of this joy that I believe are exceedingly precious to needy sinners. And even as saints, we are needy sinners still. And these three, throughout your outlines and your bulletins, the joy of love, the joy of ministry, and the joy of hope. First of all, I want to speak briefly about the joy of love. As the Father loved me, he said, I have also loved you. He says this in verse 9, right before he gets to this issue of joy. Now both things were joyous, to be loved by the Father and to love his disciples. And his heart, you see, it gushes with holy love, and as it gushes with holy love, the next thing he wants to speak about is his rejoicing, his joy. And he wants that to be in them. Now, let me just ask you, have you ever fallen in love with somebody? I trust that at least the people that are married here can say yes about that. I don't think that it would be very good to get married if you never fell in love. So did you ever fall in love with somebody? Now, just think back about the times of the greatest happiness that you had in your relationship with that person you loved. What were the happiest moments? Were they not when your heart was ravished with love for that person? Love and joy, you see, go together. And conversely, you see, if this love has begun to fade, the joy begins to fade. When love is absent, it no longer rejoices. A fretful, self-absorbed, complaining heart can never be rejoices. If you're only thinking about yourself, you're not loving somebody, you're a miserable person. But a heart, you see, that loves, that's the heart, you see, that's not easily offended. It's ready to forbear. It's ready to help. It's ready to pray. It's ready to bless. And it's, it's ready to rejoice, you see. This is the heart of Jesus. Now, it's true that when it was necessary, Jesus could be very severe. He could be very stern. And especially he was that way with hypocrites, with false religious leaders. He could knit his brow and he could make his voice sound like thunder. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He could say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers Therefore, you will receive greater 
condemnation. But such judgment, that was his strange work. His heart delighted in something very different, in, in mercy and in love. Come unto me, he says, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Assuredly, he says, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an expression of love. And such words, they reveal a deep fountain of that love that's in the heart of Jesus. And it's a heart, you see, that radiates love. And a heart that radiates love is a heart, you see, that is a rejoicing heart. Now, the apostles, they must have understood this very well. In the course of his farewell discourse, they often interrupted Jesus when he said something that sounded strange to their ears. They would say, now, what does he say this about this? What does this mean? You know how they would ask that kind of a question. But nobody interrupted Jesus when he talked about joy. Isn't that interesting? Nobody said, what is this saying that my joy will remain in you? What's this strange saying? What does he mean by joy? They didn't ask that question, did they? They all had seen his loving looks. They had felt his, his, his love and his joy in them. They saw the looks on his face as he set a little child on his knee. And on countless other occasions, they could see in his face, in his demeanor, in his words, expressions both of love and joy commingled. So when Jesus says here in John chapter 15 and verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full, the joy that he speaks about is connected to love for his disciples. And the joy that he speaks of here in verse 11, it's exegeted by the love that he speaks about in verse 9. Now this connection between his joy and his love, it's also apparent when we consider the broader context of these words. They're part of what's called the inner sanctuary of Christ's time with his disciples. There's a wonderful commentary on John chapters 13 through 17. And the title of that commentary is called The Inner Sanctuary. It's the time in which Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room. It was the most precious time of all, with the most precious heart-revealing revelations in all of his times with his disciples. And at the very beginning of that whole upper room discourse, that inner sanctuary is a description of something very intimate. This is how the whole starts. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And everything that follows in those chapters, chapters 13 to 17, it's the outflow of that love. His love for his own, John 15 and 11 tells us, is suffused with joy. And everything that he says, everything that he did on that, now, that night, it was the overflow of joyful love. Especially significant were the words that he spoke when he took bread. Words wonderfully put to music. We sometimes sing, my body broken, thus I give. For you, for all, take, eat, and live. 
And oft the sacred right renew that brings my saving love to view. Then in his hands the cup he raised, and God anew he thanked and praised, while kindness in his bosom glowed, and from his lips salvation flowed. We too experience this kindness and joy as we, having participated of his spirit, when we love others. That's joyful to us. Now, there are some people you see that are preoccupied with themselves. Everything's about them. Oh, he didn't say anything to me today, or, or uh, she didn't notice me, or I didn't get invited to such and such. And they're apt to, they're apt to see, to, to condemn and to, to judge other brethren. And if they can find a little fault, they magnify it. And they're so ready to find faults that they find faults where there aren't any faults. That's the disposition you see of some people. But there are others that have a different attitude. When they see a need, their first concern is not how to criticize it, but how to meet it and how to help it. If they stumble upon a fault, they try to cover it over in love. If they see somebody discouraged, instead of just heaping condemnation on that person, they put their arm around that man or that woman's shoulder and try to give him or her some encouraging, cheering word. If they see somebody standing alone with nobody to talk to, they go over and take an interest in that person. And if they're in the company of a poor lost sinner, they try to find some way to give that needy soul the encouragement of the best thing that he could ever hear about in all the world. Now in these and many other ways, it's when we love, you see, that we rejoice. Think with me. What, what gives you greater joy in human relationships than that? It's when you witness to somebody and you tell them the wonderful news of Jesus. That's a joyful occasion. How many times we, we're afraid and we think we're going to make a mistake and so on and so we don't open our mouths and we miss out on the great joy that would have been experienced, let alone the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. In the same way, when we minister to one another, loving others, is connected and is the outflow of joy. And so it is, you see, in these and many other acts of love, the hearts of God's people are filled with joy. Christ's joy is their joy. And it flows out. And on the other hand, you want to be miserable? Go and have a self-pity party. Bitterly go over in your mind all the ways you've been overlooked, all the ways you've been mistreated by people. But on the other hand, do you want to enter into Jesus' joy? Do you want his joy to be full in you and overflow? Then go and find some way to show the love of Jesus to some needy person. And in doing this, you will experience joy. Jesus experienced joy in washing the disciples' feet. He experienced joy. The first thing he did when he started talking about loving them is to to wash their feet. And so it will be with you and with me. So the, the joy that we're talking about here is the joy of love. But now we come to our second heading. I want to speak to you about the joy of ministry. In his wonderful little book, The Heart of Christ, 17th century Congregationalist Thomas Goodwin, he was, by the way, a companion and friend of John Owen, He begins one of his sentences in this book in this way. 
And I want you to think about how you would finish this sentence. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by, and how would you finish that sentence? His comfort, happiness, and joy is increased. How is it increased? What would you say? Well, there are various answers that are biblical. It would be true to say that Jesus' joy is experienced and increased through his own obedience to the Father. He speaks about the joyfulness of obedience. And his wasn't just a begrudging uh, uh, obedience to onerous rules. It was free, willing obedience that came because he loved the will of his Father. He was joyful in his obedience. So that would be a good, good answer. When his father expressed his will, he said, I delight to do your will, O my, o my God. Your law is within my heart. And likewise, he rejoices when we keep his commandments. So that would be a biblical answer. He, his, his joy, you see, his happiness, his glory is increased as he obeys. But then also we could say, according to the parable of the talents, another way in which his joy is experienced is when the faithfulness of believers in little assignments prepares them for greater assignments. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He's happy when he sees what they've done for him. And he blesses them for it. So we could see, yes, that's a way in which his joy is, is increased. His happiness is increased. But there's an equally biblical way in which Christ's joy is increased. And we say increased in human terms, because obviously he's infinite and so forth. But as we're speaking about him as man, that's what we're talking about. And often this way of, of, of his joy being increased, it's, it's overlooked. As Christians, we intuitively know that it pleases Jesus when we listen to him, when we obey him. Intuitively, we think, well, yeah, that'll please him and give, make him happy when I obey him. But do we naturally think that Jesus rejoices when he gets his hands dirty and especially when he gets his hands dirty as it were dealing with our sins. How could that bring him joy? How could that bring him anything but disgust and repulsion? Why would, what, what is his attitude to me at, at such a time when I've just sinned? So Goodwin, he completes that sentence this way. Let me read the whole sentence. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by showing his grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members on earth. Now, Dane Ortland, who has suggested this whole line of thought to me, he draws this comparison. This is what he says by way of illustration. I want to just pass it on. This illustration is not in, uh, original with me. A compassionate doctor, he's traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to some place that doesn't have regular care. A primitive tribe, they've got some kind of a contagious disease. He's got his medical equipment. It's already been flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem. He's brought the antibiotics that are necessary. They're all available. The surgical instruments are there when necessary. 
And he's independently wealthy. He doesn't ask for any money for anything he's about to do. But as he tries to start providing care in this ravaged village, one of the problems arises. Nobody wants his help at first. They want to care for themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. We got our witch doctors. We got our little herbs that we take. And they they think, well, we, we, we figured these things out before. We don't need your help. And at last, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care that is freely offered to them. What does he feel like then? That's the moment, above all, that he feels joy. He came for that purpose. His joy is increased to the degree that the sick come to him, that they find healing, that they find deliverance. That's the reason why he came. And so it is with us, and so it is with the Lord Jesus coming to us. He doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness. He doesn't come and and just rebuke us when we plead for renewed pardon, distressed and empty and needy as we are. That's the whole point of why he came into the world. It's why he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death. He plunged himself into the utter side of, of, of hell, it's where he went through hell and he waded through all of that in order to provide a limitless supply of grace and mercy to sinners. But Goodwin is making an even deeper point. Jesus doesn't want us to draw on his grace just because it vindicates his atoning work. He wants us to draw upon his mercy and grace because it's who he is. He is a gracious Savior. He is one, you see, who came and took our flesh, lived among us, took our sins upon himself at the cross. He is one who in every way came and dwelt among us. He identified with our sins so fully that our sins became his, as it were. And his joy and our joy rise and fall together. He's one with us. So Goodwin goes on even further in this treatise to argue that Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. Now physicians, for his fee, he's faithfully going to care for a patient that's a total stranger to him. But what if that physician's patient is his dear little boy? Or his dear little two-year-old daughter who's got a terrible fever, who's perhaps going to die. It's going to be an even greater source of joy to be the occasion and, as it were, indirect cause of that little child's recovery than with a stranger. We're not strangers to Jesus. It's not just when we first came to him that we might find this grace and this mercy and he rejoices in giving it to us. It's as his children, you see. It's as his blood-bought ones that we come to him. In a similar way, you see, our relief, it brings a greater degree of comfort and joy to Jesus than it does to us. Now, as the merits of Jesus' death and resurrection are applied to us, and as our sins are pardoned, And as our hearts are sanctified further, and as our hearts are comforted, in all these ways, the happiness of Jesus is increased 
And we're talking about him as, the, as a man here. As the infinite God is blessedness can't be increased. But as a man, his happiness is increased. And as the sacrifice and intercession of the Lord Jesus secure our forgiveness and sanctification, our Savior rejoicing in us is far greater than ever we could experience or know ourselves. So dear child of God, as you come to the table this afternoon, filled with anguish and sorrow over your sin, grieving over the way you've broken vows, grieving over the way you went right back to the hog trough, Graving over the way in which you were like you say, well, I was just like that dog that went back to vomit again. How can I be forgiven? Grieving over the way you've abused God's grace. Grieving over, over all these sins that you've committed. You could only find relief, you see, in the shed blood of Christ. And this is, this is your comfort. This is even your joy. And when you come to Jesus in this way for comfort and for forgiveness and grace... You're not asking for Jesus to decide in your favor against his better instincts. You're asking for the very thing that he wants to do. He wants to forgive you. He wants to heal you and to restore you. And so you're pleased they flow in the same direction as his deepest desire. In the blood and righteousness of Christ and in his finished work and in his infinite suffering on the cross and in his resurrection triumph over sin and death and in his prevailing intercession for you and me there is joy for the troubled conscience and rightly therefore we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation Paul says in Romans 5:11 but there's more than this it's more than just receiving the atonement one of the ways in which we fail to rejoice as we should in the finished work of Christ, is our tendency suppose that, that somehow we, we impoverish Jesus when we draw so much, you see, from his grace. But as Goodwin goes on to argue, when Jesus fills us with mercy, when he fills us with grace and comfort and happiness, he becomes full by filling us. Now, obviously, Goodwin is not saying that as God, Christ can ever become more full. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But as man, his heart, you see, even as man, is not drained out by our coming to him. It's filled even more with joy. This is why he came. This is what he rejoices to do. And so if you're looking in the shadows, if you're, you're, you're shrinking back from Jesus, fearful that you might presume upon his grace, remember he lives to give you this grace. This is what he loves to do. This is his joy. His joy and our joy, they rise and fall together. Now turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. In this place, we are urged to look to Jesus. Then notice how we are to look to Jesus. Verse 2 is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.
He did this for the joy, it says. What joy? What was the joy awaiting Jesus on the other side of the cross? It was the joy of seeing his people forgiven. The joy of seeing them saved to the uttermost, as it's repeated again and again in this book. Remember the great theme of Hebrews. He's the great high priest that has come to be an end of all the other priests. And this is, he has done by making a full atonement. None of them could really remove sin. Other priests continually had to offer fresh sacrifices. But once he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, he did this once for all, never needing to do it again. And the absolute sufficiency of this atoning death, it's stressed, you see, again and again in this book. And it's stressed by its repeated references to his sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 1 and verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 8 and verse 1, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 10 and verse 12, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he is. He's seated at God's right hand. And what does he do there? He pleads for you and me. He intercedes, pleading the merits of his atoning blood. And therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, seeing that he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 7 and verse 25. And it's when we partake of that atoning work, when we are the answer to his prayers, as it were, coming for forgiveness, coming for acceptance, in spite of our sinfulness. It's then that we lay hold of his deepest longing, his deepest purpose, his deepest joy. This is the heart of Jesus, dear child of God, toward you. And with these passages in Hebrews, there's a connection with many other passages in the New Testament. We don't have time to look them all up. But before this sermon, we, we, we sang a song. It was based upon a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. A parable that speaks of his going after the lost sheep. And there in Luke chapter 15, let me just read that, that parable. Find it first. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors. He says to them, rejoice with me, because I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, Jesus says, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. There's joy in heaven, he says. No doubt joy among the angels to see people saved, but supremely joy in the shepherd who found the sheep and says, rejoice with me, for this one was lost and is now found. This is the joy that he has. And again, back to John chapter 15, 
In John chapter 15, we see that when Jesus says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, this goes beyond even the forgiveness of sin. It's also Christ's joy to help us keep his commandments. It's also his joy to help us abide in his love, which is what he's just been talking about the first part of that chapter. And so we read in John chapter 15, going back to verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. It's not just in forgiveness, you see, but in obedience and all these other ways, his sanctification of us, all these gifts that he gives to us, his joy becomes our joy. And it's his joyous work to do this work in our hearts. He does you see, well, well, I'll just forgive you and I hope you don't ever offend again. It's a little bit uh, too much to have to keep on coming back to me too many times like this. He doesn't treat us that way. He welcomes us again and again. And not just to forgive us, but to help us. To give us strength against temptation. To help us obey. What a source of joy this is. Christ, his joy becomes our joy. He gives himself to us. And what a ground of joy is this possession of Christ, the Lord Jesus himself. So you're distressed over the strong corruptions you've been fighting against lately. Powerful inbred sins. Powerful temptations. You'd be ashamed for it to all be put on the screen before everybody at church. You feel discouraged about those sins. You feel discouraged about the way in which you have not glorified him in this way or in that. You know your own heart. But if you have the Lord Jesus in the midst of your temptations and trials, in the midst of your troubles, helping you and strengthening you, if that is there, if he's there helping you mortify sin, if he's helping you persevere to the end, in him, you see, you have the, the presence of, of the fullness of joy. In him, you have an almighty redeemer, a loving friend. You have a sympathizing brother, a prevailing intercessor. You have one that's promised never to leave you. So as Winslow exclaims, Octavius Winslow, in his book on the sympathy of Christ, oh, what a portion is Jesus in a portionless world. What a rest is Jesus in a restless world. What a joy is Jesus in a joyless world. What a hope is Jesus in a hopeless world. Beloved, we too little and too imperfectly realize what we possess in possessing Christ. Sometimes I think we imagine that we're going to just abuse his grace a little bit too much and ask him for it a little bit too often in too unqualified a manner. We sin. We got to kind of, you know, kind of go through some penance and sorrow and grief for, for a few days, and, and we can't bear to come and ask for forgiveness right away because we feel like, well, you know, I'm just going to show that I'm insincere. And we have all these things that make us hesitate from coming to Jesus. But we shouldn't take this attitude about being measured and reasonable and not pulling too hard on His mercy or on His grace. Dane Ortland, he answers this question with another question. 
with a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw the oxygen of the oxygen in the oxygen tank in any more reasonable measured way is that the, would that be his attitude and so is it Jesus attitude to want you to draw upon his grace in a more reasonable more measured way no he wants you to draw upon his fullness he is the head. We are his body. He's one with us. And he rejoices when we draw from the riches of his atoning work and the fullness of his grace. Well, I've only got a few minutes here. I want to just comment briefly on the third and final aspect of this joy. We've spoken about the joy of love and the joy of ministry. But now a word or two about the joy of hope. In Luke chapter 10 in verse 21, when Jesus' disciples come back and they tell of the demons being cast out in his name, we read in Luke chapter 10, in verse 21, that Jesus rejoiced. He exulted in the Holy Spirit. And the word that's used there is a strong word. It conveys the idea of exuberant gladness, gladness that fills his heart. He could see as he describes it to his disciples, and if we had time, we'd examine the whole passage. He could see the, the Satan falling like lightning from heaven. He could see the defeat of the kingdom of the darkness. And he, even while he's in the midst of his labors, he sees great, he has great satisfaction in seeing the advance, you see, of his kingdom already as it's coming, coming upon his disciples and upon the earth. And even in the midst of his final sufferings, he ministers to a thief. He rejoices to save that man from his sins. And in all of this, he sees an advance, you see. He has hope about what these precursors of victory, what they mean for the final outcome. And again in Hebrews chapter 12, again to cite that same text, we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's the future, he endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He could see the mediatorial reward in the distance. And this wasn't just a personal reward. It was a reward to be shared with his beloved ones. And the thought of sharing with them the victory, this was one of the richest aspects of the joy that he experienced. Through the smoke and through the dim and the din of the battle, he could see the triumph about to happen. Even in the darkness, you see, even though he's sorrowful and cast down and weighed down with heaviness, almost too sorrowful unto death. He has glimpses of what's ahead. He rejoices in saving a thief right by his side. And he sees the coming triumph and he endures the cross. As he stood before Caiaphas, bound and bleeding, he startled his judges by his vision about what's to happen. It's bursting upon his mind. It drives them crazy when he says it. But this is what he says, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64. Nevertheless, he says, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He could see Satan hurled down from his throne. He could see the cause of God arising. He could see the prevailing of the righteousness of God. He could hear already the songs of the angels in triumph. 
He could hear the grand crescendo as it would come in the last day. A song that would be sung by every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea. Glory would be down to his father. Glory would be down to all of his people. This was his hope. And this hope was a source of his joy. And that source of joy was all bound up in the salvation of you and of me. The blessed reign of holiness and peace. He could see it in advance. He could see the myriads of the redeemed being filled with joy as they gather around the throne. And so he says in John 15, These things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you. This is my joy. I want you to have this joy of hope as well. The enjoyment, of course, in all of its fullness won't come until the last day, but we have glimpses of it. We had glimpses of it this morning as we considered the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. As we sang that beautiful hymn, the sands of time are sinking. As we think about the glory of our Savior and gazing upon his face and admiring him, rejoicing in him, these are foretastes of what's to come. These are the sources of our joy, our spiritual joy. And I would just say as we try to put in a little word here by way of practical application, let's take care, therefore, about the way we use media. You might say, well, this is kind of a distraction in your sermon, Pastor. But you see, lovers of Christ in our day, we can't watch the news, you see, without getting ready to stress sometimes. And I'm not saying that you should never watch the news. But when we see a wholesale rebellion in our land against God and his word, and we see that God gives up our nation over even unto its insanity, it's just astonishing the sanity that's going on in our country. This is what happens when God's word is rejected. He gives people over to their folly and self-destruction. And accelerating these downward trends are people that secretly plot to bring down this or that. There's all these conspiracies that take place. I don't have time to consider all and track out all the conspiracies. They're, they're, they're always going to happen. There are big conspiracies going on for about 10,000 years now. But thank God that he's, he's, he's sovereign over all of it. And in this we can rejoice. And there is a place for us to be like the men of Issachar who understand the times, who know what's going on, not for ignorant. We're not to be like people with our heads buried in the sand. But I, I, I would just caution you here. Don't get so consumed in that, that you, that you live in misery, considering all these dark things that are happening and might happen. And have your peace and have your joy robbed away from you because of it. Paul tells us that we're to think about what things are noble, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, and the like. And the unfiltered consumption of media, therefore, is contrary to that, that disposition. May God help us to be balanced in the way we, we, we process these things in our lives. Jesus' joy was a hope-filled joy. And if all we think about is everything going wrong, it's just, it robs us of our hope. We need to see beyond what's going on in our country and in the world. We need to see the triumphs of our Savior that are promised in his word. And if there's anything that should fill our hearts with anticipation, it is the promise that Jesus says when he prays, they shall be with me where I am, that they may behold 
my glory. What a day that will be to behold his glory, to be with him, and to rejoice with him forever and forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess that we so live not up to the light of the privileges that you've given to us. We have such small thoughts of you and of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Enlarge our hearts, we do pray, to take in his love, to take in his joy, to take in his grace, to appropriate it, and to live upon it day by day. Forgive us even now of our many trespasses. Receive us and grant us grace even now as we gather around the table. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior.